Hello, I'm Dr. David Rosensweet. I'm a holistic medical doctor and I'm the founder of the Menopause Method and I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. The biggest concern I have, which is so much greater than a pet peeve, is the injury to women of this planet from the results of a study, Women's Health Initiative, that scared women off of taking hormones and physicians and professionals from prescribing them. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Hey, thanks for joining us again. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, a holistic pharmacist with that new car smell. And not just because my lease was up and I got a new Civic, but I generally love that smell and I have it bottled up in a perfume. My staff hate it. Anywho, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and tell a friend that we're dropping knowledge on the natural products industry. For more of that knowledge, check out woodstockvitamins.com for my blogs and my webinars. I think that they're quite good along with this podcast. It's like a little trifecta. Today, we're talking hormones. Dr. David Rosensweet's my guest. He's a practicing physician who specializes in the treatment of menopause. And he doesn't just treat women individually. He actually educates other practitioners on how to treat menopause using bioidentical hormones the right way. On top of that, he's a nationally known lecturer, and he's the organizer of the National Summit Committee on the Treatment of Women in Menopause with Bioidentical Hormones. And of course, he's written a book on it. He's an author. His newest book is Happy Healthy Hormones, How to Thrive in Menopause. He calls his approach the menopause method, and the concept of using hormones the right way is the focus of this first of hopefully many discussions with Dr. Rosensweep. So if you're an almost 50-year-old woman with the room heating up on you right now, but you're not laying on the radiator, this conversation is probably for you. Dr. Rosensweet, this is the only uh, consult that I've ever done behind a riot shield uh, because I feel like the women that are going through this process are pretty frustrated with everything. Uh, tell me tell me that this is not the situation that you see, and I'll say I'm a crazy person. <laughs> that the women are pretty frustrated? Yeah, with the current treatment modalities, all the misinformation. and Well, it, um, is, it is problematic because mm -hmm. another, quote, pet peeve is the quality of care being delivered is variable. Yes. From very poor care to highly informed standard of care mm -hmm. and everything in between. Right. And then a woman has to go shopping and find her comfort zone and find really what really matters is she finds a professional that she really resonates with how they approach her. And this is going to be found in the compounded bioidentical world it's not mm -hmm. it's you know having said that god bless every woman who's received any kind of hormone treatment premer and prem pro it's never something i've ever prescribed but at least they got hormones in them right because your approach is your approach is that we women need these hormones despite um another group of uh researchers or uh, practitioners that feel you know what you're supposed to be without those hormones that's that's what happens naturally <laughs> i wonder who says that it ain't the women saying <laughs> because as they lose their ability to think clearly and sleep and their mood tanks and their libido disappears and their vagina dries up and they their, their bladder falls and they have to wear Depends and they get into canes, walkers, and wheelchairs in assisted living, they're not saying this is terrific unless no. 
if my vagina dried up, I would be pretty upset. So the best way for us, though, to proceed, I think, is to help women from the beginning of the bits of misinformation all the way through to the end. Um, so the definition of menopause is normally where I would start. So because people are like, well, am I in peri? Am I in post? Am I in premenopause? What? Where am I? You know? It's a gray zone. It's a gradual developing thing, menopause, because a woman's hormone output peaks at the, between the age of 18 and 20. And it's a mm -hmm. gradual decline of estrogens, for example, until they fall off this cliff um, somewhere in their 40s or 50s. And then the estrogen really tanks and goes very low. It doesn't stop declining from there, but it declines so much they don't menstruate. But it continues to decline well into their 70s and 80s. That's estrogen. The interesting thing is, it's so common these days, is progesterone, a very crucial hormone, they all are, it can decline earlier and more precipitously than the estrogen. So this is a very important moment in a woman's history. And it's often happening more and more in the earlier mid-30s, right. where they're getting less progesterone in relationship to the amount of estrogen they have, and they need that progesterone to balance that estrogen. So they get something called estrogen dominant. And it has its consequences, including possibility of increased breast glandular tissue, which is increased breast density, which is a risk for unhealthy breasts, and go on and on with that. So the ideal place for a woman to, de to detect this change is in her early 30s and start taking progesterone. Even right. over-the-counter topical progesterone is strong enough to do the job. It's not my favorite, but it, uh, that's when a woman should start thinking of these things. And, of mm -hmm. course, education is going to get her there. The next right. event that happens is when she stops ovulating. And she can pretty much date that to when her periods get irregular. And they often do before she ceases menstruating. At that point, her, her progesterone is tanked. She's still got estrogen enough to menstruate. That's another... Uh, crucial mark, that point she really needs the progesterone because you don't want estrogen to go unopposed. And if it does, you get all kinds of symptoms. In, mm -hmm. uh, that are, Do you uh, mind naming a few? Yeah, sleep disturbance and mm -hmm. mood disturbance. Like I came into the practice of menopause 25 years into my career because a patient I knew really well, uh, she was so brilliant, she had retired in her mid-40s. Think about that one. Wow. <laughs> she walked into my office. She opened up my consultation room door. There was nobody in there at the time except me. She went right up to my desk and she said, don't you think you know me? I'm telling you, I'm losing my mind. And it is serious. And don't pretend like you think you know who I am. <laughs> 45 years old, Deborah. And I said, okay. Deborah. Wow, yeah. <laughs> and serendipitously, or however, divine guidance, however, I had been speaking with John Lee, and he said, when women lose their progesterone, they can get into a mood that is really rough on them and it's enough to interrupt their life and it can disturb their sleep. And I put her on progesterone three weeks later, I get a letter from them because this was 25 years ago. I get a right. letter. Thank you so much. I'm totally myself again. I'm back online, which changed Wonderful. the course of the trajectory of my career because I had never had something that dramatic occur with so little effort. Right. A little dab will do you. Right. And how did you know at that time that progesterone was her issue? It was... The miracle of the gift that I was given as a physician, that there's not just me doing this thing here. <laughs> I have divine uh, input. And what did I do? What happened? I some, Somehow I got interested in hormones enough to make a call to the father of progesterone in this country, John Lee. And the gentleman was such a 
generous fellow, and he gave, sent me a pre-copy of the first book that he published, and he told me about the virtues of progesterone, and a couple of weeks later, Deborah walks in my office. So That's you, great. <laughs> so you tell me how that happens, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, thankfully it did, right? And so what we were talking about is a woman's progression into menopause. Mm -hmm. For 75% of the women, when that estrogen tanks and they stop menstruating, they get raucous symptoms. Mm -hmm. And for 25%, they don't. So every so often, you're going to run into an elderly woman who says, hey, menopause is nothing for me. I didn't have any symptoms at all. They're still drying up. They're still losing their muscle. They're still losing their cognition. But they don't think they need hormones. They're, they're, they're actually more vulnerable than most. These other women, they get raucous symptoms, small, medium, or huge. For one thing, they'll get a hot flash in during the day, and they're fine. It's not that big a deal. They ride it. But if they get a hot flash in the middle of the night, it, oh, man. it's very stressful. It mm -hmm. triggers a whole bunch of adrenaline output, and they get to stay awake with a racing mind as if they had taken speed. Mm -hmm. And until their liver is capable of dismantling that epinephrine, which may take an hour or two, so they're lying there and they're losing their sleep. And tell me the last time that you survived losing three nights sleep in a row and how you were right. functioning. I had uh, four small children, so that was probably the last time. And if I had to do it again, I would probably rip my hair out, whatever's left of it. That's you know, it's all receding. <laughs> <laughs> so they run into that, and they run into other symptoms as well with that low estrogen that are very disturbing to them. Mm -hmm. Their mood can tank, their libido can start disappearing, they can start losing their hair, but here's the big one, weight gain. When you lose estrogen, your body doesn't like it. And this is a little known thing, but estrogen can be recruited for the biological stress response. And when, you don't, and when you're stressed and you don't have the, uh, the spiritual tools to deal well with it so you don't trigger your own fight or flight, you wind up recruiting your, your estrogen, your testosterone, your DHEA, and they function really well in the stress response. It's why a lot of young women who are intense athletes and intense training, stressful training, they're not menstruating. You look at those Olympics then, and mm -hmm. you tell me how many of those women are actually menstruating because their estrogen's shooting down the stress pathway rather than down the female pathway. So the main thing is, is when you lose estrogen, you've got to compensate. You're stressed. Your life is, your body interprets that as your life is at risk. So you increase the uh, production of cortisol and adrenaline. Oh, that's nice. You get elevated, you get insulin resistance and elevated glucose. And that's a fantastic recipe for putting on weight. And why women show up in doctor's offices, the chief complaints they show up with is, I've got this weight gain that's really disturbing to me. And I'm not thinking clearly. I'm working. I've got a high-powered job, for example, or it's even if I'm functioning as a mother, which requires a lot of neurons yeah. firing, and, mm -hmm. and they're not able to do it, and they really feel it, and they're faking it, and they're most disturbed by the cognitive decline and the weight gain. And then, you know, they're getting vaginal dryness, they're getting all kinds of symptoms. I'm just naming a few there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always used to separate out for people the difference between the systemic and the local. So I would talk about the localized symptoms to the reproductive tract and how that can have the dryness. And those sometimes are worse for people than the systemic stuff, the hot flashes and all of the stuff that you've described. Um, and sometimes treatment can be tailored that way, right? You can, you can target one versus the other, or do you normally do a holistic type view? The bottom line physiological issues that we want to address is every one of their hormone ovarian hormones and some of their adrenal hormones 
and sometimes their thyroid hormone has gone below what's acceptable for their well-being mm-hmm. and the function of their arteries, their mind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. our strategy is to replenish each one of those hormones with great precision because every woman differs according to how much she needs, what her internal balance is, how sensitive she is to anything you give her. Estrogen and progesterone, state-of-the-art, must be delivered topically. I'm sorry, estrogen and testosterone. Mm-hmm. If you don't deliver them topically, you're putting a woman at risk for deep venous thrombosis, for pulmonary embolus. This is not a minor matter. That's why women on the birth control pill, a certain percentage of them, small, but that happened. Uh, they got pulmonary embolus and... Isn't there a risk of um, like cancerous metabolites of estrogen from oral absorption as well? Or am I just recalling that incorrectly? Well, cancerous. Mm, carcinogenic? You're on to something here. Mm-hmm. Because any steroid hormone, which is fat-soluble only, doesn't dissolve in water, if the steroid hormone is delivered by mouth, the very first thing that happens, it goes from the intestinal tract directly to the liver. And it goes through, most of it's metabolized. 60 to 80% of it is, has to be metabolized immediately by the liver. Mm-hmm. And then some of it escapes and gets off into the systemic circulation. However, in order to get enough to go in the systemic circulation, you have to use much higher doses orally. And one of the consequences of that is you get a lot of metabolites. In the world of metabolites, cancer is a complex illness. Mm-hmm. There's a multitude of factors. And hormones don't cause cancer. But you are pointing to something there. We, there's data that show that if the liver is not processing these hormones properly, like estrogen properly, you can get some provo- provocation from the metabolites alone. Moral of the story is you take an estrogen orally, and you're going to have to take much higher doses that are going to produce much higher meta- metabolic levels. And there are there's people out there who have asserted that the issue with taking estrogens orally and the perceived increased risk for breast cancer, which, remember, never happened. It doesn't happen. There, mm-hmm. That's incorrect. There's a less of a risk for breast cancer for even taking estrogens orally. Less of a mm-hmm. risk than a woman who goes untreated. But the doses that are used, someone attributed, a famous doctor attributed to the increased risk of cancer that was reported by the WHI, but again was false, was due to the increased metabolites and I think that's what you're referring to. Got it. The Women's Health Initiative, you brought it up, so let's talk about it. Um, do you want to just kind of set the stage for people that aren't aware, like what the results said at the time, what people did, and what's happened since? The Women's Health Initiative was the most expensive study that was ever performed. It cost a billion dollars. No study, medical study has ever cost that much. The motivation for that study was the pharmaceutical industry and physicians who treated women were aware that not only did it have hot flash alleviating possibilities by treating women with hormones, but that the market share should have been much greater because doctors and the pharmaceutical industry realized that it reduced the risk of heart attack, stroke, and so the study was designed to prove to doctors that they should be treating a lot more women primarily to prevent heart attack, stroke, and cancer. The design of this study was someone couldn't have done a worse job (laughs) in who they selected. They selected a very skewed population. It was astounding. The real experts didn't really design this study. And they got funky results, but they still showed that um, a woman taking Premarin had less risk. 
But they had data that showed by 2004 that the second arm of the study, PremPro, which is a combination of Premarin and medroxyprogesterone acetate, Provera, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they purported that there was an increased incidence of breast cancer, a 1.24 relative risk. But published in that study was that that was statistically insignificant. But there was a group of, we thought they were misogynists, those who have really uh, zeroed in on this, they wanted the risk published, and they, they captured the data of the committee, and they sent it to the Journal of the American Medical Association, even though the whole committee didn't weigh in on it. And many people were objecting like crazy that they were going to publish statistically insignificant data, but they blasted out into the press. This is the Women's Health Initiative, and the bottom line is it scared women all over this planet and physicians all over this planet that hormones caused cancer. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty much overnight that Premarin went away. I think Premarin went away faster than opioids have. Yeah, and it went from the most popular and profitable drug that ever was mm -hmm. to it almost disappeared. Mm -hmm. And then the pharmaceutical industry started noting that women were still turning towards hormones, and they were going to these compounded bioidentical hormones, and they started on a, uh, a, a program to get rid of the bioidenticals because they were really angry that they right. lost their market share. Before we get into that, because I got affected by that personally as well, um, let's talk about, though, the more modern interpretation of the data. You were talking about 2017. Sure. There was like a, a revisiting of this. Well, there was a lot of uh, medical doctors and scientists that said, wait a minute, you published this study, and this study said there was not an increase. It was statistically insignificant. And by 2006, they followed the women, they stopped the PremPro arm of the study. They kept the Premarin arm going because it had lesser risk. So women mm -hmm. were continued to being treated and followed by, uh, with Premarin. But by 2006, they realized that they were incorrect about the increased risk for PremPro, and they published it, 2006. Got it. Now, who heard about that? Nobody. Not me. Nobody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had done a deep dive into the literature when the WHI came out because I had been treating women in uh, menopause for 10 years by then. And am I putting them at risk? And my conclusion that bioidenticals didn't do that. And we had literature, scientific studies backing that up. So I felt free to go forward. And I felt mm -hmm. reassured to go forward because there have been European studies on the bioidenticals that showed that when you use the proper combination of estrogen and, pro and um, progesterone, you get less risk. Mm-hmm. Can you define for everybody the bioidentical versus the Premarin and progesterone, just in case people aren't familiar with it yet? Yeah, Premarin, it makes sense. I mean, what they needed to, was to manufacture a great quantity of hormones. So what did they choose? Everyone knows that hormones exist in large animals and in animals all over the planet and actually in plants. So they chose the horse because the horse puts out a tremendous amount of urine. They know that the hormones show up in the urine and they chose pregnant horses because the enormous amounts of hormones show up in a pregnant urine. They catheterize these horses, they put them in stalls, they, uh, they collect the urine and they fractionate off the hormones. And they put them in a pill. And I was eating lunch with a pharmacist oh, 15 years ago and he, and he said to me, did you ever wonder why the coating on Premarin was so thick? I had no idea, I'd never prescribed Premarin. And, he sa and I said, no. And he said, well, I did. I did. So I bit into it, and this odor of urine just poured out. <laughs> That's oh, why no. it was so thick. Yeah. Well, even the name 
Premarin, pregnant mare urine. A lot of exactly. people don't understand that. That's exactly. That it sounds like this beautiful, one, you know, wonderful flowerish thing, and it's uh, really pregnant mare urine derived. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, in the 80s, a, a medical doctor, a colleague, and dear friend of mine thought, "Wait a minute. We know there's pure estrogen out there because they've made it for the birth control pill." They, they didn't use Premarin in the birth control pill. Mm -hmm. They used pure estradiol. Mm -hmm. And he said, why can't we get a hold of that pure estradiol and just use it in its pure form? They weren't using a pure form in the birth control pill because they can't patent that. So they added an ethanol molecule onto the estradiol. But the, the physician, Dr. Jonathan Wright, suggested to his compounding pharmacist, can't you get a hold of the pure estradiol before they muck it up with, with um, ethanol? And they did. The pharmaceutical manufacturers had carefully extracted and converted the precursors to the estrogens and the androgens from plants. Because how different are we from a plant? Have you ever looked at a mm -hmm. soybean lately? Is there a big difference between me and a soybean, for example? Uh, they, not they got between <laughs> yeah, most soybeans and registered voters, I would say, no. <laughs> well, they have hormones or precursors to the ovarian hormones, interestingly enough. So the pharmaceutical companies own vast fields of soybeans and yams and they have exquisitely precise bless their hearts extraction and conversion mechanisms and they take diastrogen out of the soybean and they convert it to estradiol estriol progesterone testosterone through very exquisite methods and then they don't use it in that form they have they to then modify it they modify it so they can get a patent on it but the mm -hmm. pure stuff is uh, available, so the compounding, uh, Dr. Wright suggested, why don't you go buy, see if you can buy the pure form, and sure enough, the compounding pharmacists could, and yeah. they purchased the pure hormones. These are molecularly identical to what's, into a what's in a human female. This isn't pregnant mare urine. This right. is the molecules are identical to what's being produced in a woman's ovary. Right. And all they are is they, they're, they come down to powders and the... Compounding pharmacists, as you know so well, put them up in gels, creams, and um, capsules. Depositories, capsules, yeah, everything. All kinds of Trokies, things. Trokies, all sorts yeah. of fun. Yeah, so the bioidenticals are the ones that are identical to us biologically, and the other stuff is the chemically modified stuff. So really, what's the difference? Like, is there uh, evidence showing that all hormones are bad? Well, there's a big difference, let me tell you. There's evidence showing only that all hormones are good. There's conflicting papers in the literature, but there's an oncologist, Avram Blooming, mm -hmm. and his partner, Carol Tavris, who's a PhD. And in S September of 2018, they published a book called Estrogen Matters, and there's 460 references in there. And someone wants a tour de force of what these hormones are about and what it risk really is and isn't, you read that book. It's phenomenal. They don't, they're, they're not advocates of bioidentical hormones. And I'm, I'm in communication with Dr. Blooming, and I'm, we're trying to win him over. We'll see. He's a, con <laughs> he's a consummate scientist. But the big news is he's brilliant, and they've done a brilliant piece. So if you have any curiosity about what your risks really are or aren't, aren't read that book, Estrogen Matters. So let's go to the next point, which I think is very important when we talk about menopause management and the bioidentical versus tr the traditional therapies, a word that you used, precision. 
uh, because I feel precision is the piece that's lacking the most from all estrogen therapy and all menopause therapy. So can we talk about the different types of treatments that people can get from that poor grade treatment to the very precise and well done top of the top of the well, grade? Well, what's most common care in the world of traditional medicine for a woman in menopause is you give the woman the hormone at most you try and alleviate symptoms and the North American Menopause Society which is the spokespeople for traditional medicine is don't test testing doesn't work and they're correct mm. about salivary testing and they're correct they got a pet peeve about salivary testing which is accurate and they're mm -hmm. correct about blood testing because it doesn't work for treating a woman in menopause. And I'm not going to dive into the technical details unless you ask me about them. So they say don't test and have them show up once a year. And if their symptoms are controlled, they're fine. Now, we did a study of women who start, had a lot of symptoms and we titrated up when we started with low doses and had them increase until they alleviated their symptoms while falling shy of or backing down from when they went too high and got symptoms of excess. And they came to my office and they said, thank you so much, I feel good. So there's a state-of-the-art testing that is fabulous. It's being used in research since the 60s. It's called 24-hour urine hormone collection. And just to cut to the chase, there is no other way to accurately assess hormones. And you can debate me on it and you can tell me all kinds of methods that are out there and there is no other way. And it's fabulous. So we did a study and we found that when a woman said she feels great, my symptoms are great, 50% of them were on dosages insufficient to protect them from vaginal atrophy and from bone loss. Those are big. That's osteoporosis. Yeah. And 25% of them were on doses more robust than I would accept over the long term, put them at risk for breast glandular cell proliferation, and thus increased breast density, and that puts them at risk for breast cancer. There is a target zone. I personally have been the definer of that target zone there's a laboratory that took on my correlation between the medical literature and the too much and too little, and they report out what the optimal zone is for women. And it isn't youthful. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't take yeah. that much. In fact, right. it falls shy. If you think of 20 to 29-year-old, her optimal zone for estradiol and estrone, and there's a range, is going to be here. Mm -hmm. But we, but the literature-defined optimal range for a menopausal woman, enough to protect the bones, you want to have enough to protect the bones and the vagina, and you don't want to have too much, it's here. So we're like higher or lower? Lower. So lower. So where the menopausal treatment zone leaves off right here, that's where the young woman's optimal zone begins. So we're not right. trying to replicate youthful levels. In fact, I'm very for, much against it. Mm -hmm. But we've defined those zones, how? By what I thought was good? No, I went into the medical right. literature. There's great studies defining how much does it take to protect the bones? How much does it take to protect, protect the vagina? Those are very definitive. And those are definitive blood levels that are universal? Blood, no. You can't find it out by blood. Um, that's right. I'm sorry. Uh, definite urine levels that will... Uh, well, you, the original studies you... were done on blood. And we did the correlations between blood levels and 24-hour urines. Because uh, once you're treating a woman, mm -hmm. how are you going to get it from blood? It depends mm -hmm. on when she took her last dose, 
how fast, how good absorber or slow absorber her skin was. It brings in the issue of pharmacokinetics and timing from her last dose. And it's, you can't get it right by blood. That's right. why the North American Menopause Society says, forget about blood. You can't get it from a woman you're treating. You can get good blood results on a young woman, but not from a woman you're treating. But they don't know about 24-hour urine hormone tests. So the salivary testing is out for you as well. You you don't Absolutely. even bother with it. I tried it. Yeah, I yeah. tried early on in my career. I thought this is great. It's difficult. This is great. But mm -hmm. one thing I immediately bumped into with several of my most erudite coll uh, colleagues bumped into is they don't correlate well with clinical situation. So it's sort I, of baffling to me. And then when you think about it, is the saliva a natural conduit? Couldn't you have all kinds of problems with saliva? You betcha. And the only way that you can get decent results in saliva is under research conditions with very defined parameters that you'd never mm -hmm. meet out there in the streets. Yeah, I mean, I stopped using it when we were doing our consultations in our little practice. I stopped using it, and I just looked at the ratios just to get an approximate idea of, like, where those two things were. But uh, same thing. It was mostly symptoma symptomatic management is really yeah. where we were Yeah, whereas, the, I mean, and you asked about precision. Mm -hmm. And the advantages of, I mean, how, how good can you get this work? Mm -hmm. Well, in the 1960s, an oncologist, a medical doctor at the University of Nebraska, had access to the 24-hour urine hormone testing method. And he decided to test the urine, i.e. look at the hormones, of women who had breast cancer and women who didn't. And what he found was there was 1.3 times as much estriol in a young healthy woman's urine mm -hmm. then there was the sum of the two most potent estrogens estradiol and estrone 1.3 times as much in other words nature thought there was something to this estriol thing mm -hmm. in the woman with breast cancer there was half as much estriol as there was the sum of estradiol and estrone and he thought that the lack of estriol was a risk factor for women developing breast cancer. There's so much more to breast cancer. There's so much more to serious illness. I'm never going to attribute it to this, something this subtle. But my colleague, John, Dr. Jonathan Wright, in the 80s said, duh, why don't we copy nature? Let's do something really radical. Since nature believes that there should be a lot of estriol, right. let's not give women estradiol. Let's give them estradiol plus estriol. In fact, the most common formulation, as you know so well, is 80% estriol and 20% estradiol, or somewhere in that territory. Yep. So you asked about precision. Well, in all the FDA-approved pharmacological uh, manufactured estrogens, they're only giving out estradiol. They're not using estriol at all. So that's just one of the reasons that you want to, if you want precise, something that copies nature and puts women at less risk, and not only that, you give them bias. You give them this combination. Now, in Dr. Lemon, who did this in the 60s, there was no published data. And maybe this is getting too technical, Neil, and you interrupt me if it is. Mm -hmm. In the 90s, they discovered the two estrogen receptor sites, estrogen receptor site alpha and estrogen receptor site beta. And they learned that estrogen alpha was very active during the first half of a woman's period, a cycle. Mm-hmm because it's anticipation of possible pregnancy and lactation, and it begins as early. 
but if there's not implant, so there's proliferation of breast glandular tissue during the first half of a woman's cycle that every woman knows, or most women yep. do, their breasts get more full and even tender by mid-cycle. And if they implant, if they ovulate and that gets um, implanted in the uterus with, in, conju- in conjunction with a sperm, we all know how that happens. They uh, go can on. you go over that with me? Yes. If there is internet, I have the internet. Oh, you do. Okay. If there is implantation (laughs) and actual impregnation, then that process, guided by estrogen receptor site alpha, continues all the way to nine months and prepares a woman's breast for breastfeeding. And that's quite a process. You want to pump out enough breast milk to sustain a human infant for a couple years with no other food. You got to have a major factory going on there, and that's under the guidance of estrogen receptor site alpha. But right. if a woman does not get impregnated, a deep proliferation occurs, where all that tissue that had built up during the first half of the cycle and led to breast fullness, it starts disappearing. The cells disappear by apoptosis. It's called deproliferation. That's under the guidance of estrogen receptor site beta. And what's the chief stimulator of estrogen receptor site alpha? estradiol. And what's the chief stimulator of estrogen receptor site beta? Estriol. So Dr. Lemon didn't know that in the 60s. He just said, you need estriol. You want cancer protection. So you talked about precision. That's one Mm -hmm. of many things. And in my pet peeves is there are a significant number of physicians and nurse practitioners and physicians assistants that are doing 24-hour urine hormone testing, but God knows what percentage it is. If I had to make a wild guess, 90 to 95% of all these hormones that are getting prescribed, these women aren't accurately tested. For sure. I would say it's probably closer to almost 100% of them aren't getting accurately tested. Yeah. And there's, there's two excellent labs in the United States that do this. Yep. And so one of my pet peeves is test these women. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, so you're talking about the precision because here's where it is for me. Like, I'm gun shy. I'm a traditional practitioner. I saw the Women's Health Initiative. I don't pay attention to the literature because I'm too busy getting $15 for my, you know, one-hour uh, wellness consults and stuff. And I'm very nervous about this. And you're talking about giving someone estrogen or progesterone based on how they feel. Um, that to me says, oh, Jesus, that could be too much because. You know, it's a it's a sophisticated dance that you're doing, trying to figure out what. Well, that takes level that takes some intelligence to. to go that far. I think mm-hmm. it was most disturbing to traditional doctors who could have done good with knowing very little. Is the Women's Health Initiative scared the uh, the pants off them? Right. So now I'm there, and now you're saying that well, we can accomplish this. There's actually not the same risks as we had before. So then, how do we? proceed in a manner that is better than anything that we've done before, which is the pregnant Mary urine, the one-size-fits-all, the high-dose oral stuff. So what do we do from a precision standpoint moving forward? And the, the, the big question that I want you to answer, though, is is that what's being done? So if 99% of people aren't testing correctly... There's still a bunch of these, crap going on. Yeah. What the, so then how is it going to be any different? Well... There is a certain percentage of physicians, like I spend 80% of my professional time Mm -hmm. training and mentoring patient Mm -hmm. by patient, treating how to treat women in menopause with the level of precision that I think is appropriate, that I consider a standard of care. Right. And so that is occurring in the United States. 
and it's not the most prevalent thing. We're trying to penetrate the whole country and then get mm-hmm. into Canada and England and Australia, etc. We want the whole right. world. That's our mission. And mm-hmm. you know, everything in medicine starts out small and gets big. Mm-hmm. And so we're fine with that. We're just we've got a lot of action and a lot of team, and we yep. plan to get there if we can. Well, that's cool. But what about the woman that's in in uh, dire need of some hot flash relief? That uh, you know what she's gonna, going to their local guy. If she's got a good doctor mm-hmm. or a good nurse practitioner that she likes and trusts, mm-hmm. high likelihood what ever estrogen he gives her, including Premarin or Prempro, is going to do her good. And so long as they don't overdose. Okay. And the main risk of overdose is the woman's not going to like it. Although mm-hmm. some women get high on these high hormone levels, which is a... Yeah. But there's some protection against overdose because if you get... Many women who have too much estrogen, they get overstimulation of breast glandular tissue... They get breast tenderness, breast pain, nipple tenderness, so they don't like it. So the physicians recognize that, and they, t- they cut the dose down. Got it. So almost any of the traditional and FDA-approved methods, patches, they're going to do some good. Now, that's not what I like, because one thing that I discovered really early on in my career is women vary enormously, wide ranges, for how much they need as individual, what their hormonal balance is internally, how sensitive they are to anything you give them. There's women so sensitive that you put a whiff by them and it, it affects yeah. them. And there's other people like myself that I can drink a gallon of it and go, I'm fine. You know, I don't. Are you using a lot of uh, estrogen for vaginal dryness, sir? Is that what's going on? I'm not using it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so. <laughs> the the question that I have though is do we still have those same concerns estrogen should only be used for 3 to 5 years no. and how how does a let's stop on that identif- one let's stop right. on that one all right cool mm-hmm. when people got scared of hormones they said well maybe if we do a little bit for a few years well that's gone the medical mm-hmm. literature supports lifetime usage because mm-hmm. if you have a woman on estrogen you protect her from bone loss Mm -hmm. And if you protect her from bone loss, if she falls from her instability, from her muscle loss, which you can you can prevent with testosterone, um, she will fall on her hip and she won't fracture it. But if she's got osteoporosis, she's going to fracture that hip, and that used to be the end of the world for uh, that used to be the last day on earth for women. Now there's this surgery so sophisticated that yeah they can replace your hip. The moment you, let's say she's 80 years old and you think, well, she shouldn't be taking hormones anymore. You stop those hormones, she's going to develop osteoporosis quite quickly. That need never goes away. There's no reason in the world that anyone can name me, and I'm sure a lot of people would like to debate me on this, that that women should not take hormones until the day they leave Earth. That should be the last dose. Wow. Well, you tell me how they're going to do. How are they going to do? I mean, if a woman, every single woman that I've ever tested, by three mm-hmm. years of no period, her testosterone and DHEA is going to drop significantly. Mm-hmm. And what's the bane of the elderly? As I was taught in 1968 as a, a senior medical student, a gerontologist got up to give us a lecture and said, you all know a thousand diagnoses now because you're seniors in medical school. But let me tell you what's really happening with the elderly. 
they're losing their bones and they're losing their muscles and they can't stand and walk with stability and they make a right turn in the kitchen and they fall onto their hip and their shoulder and they fracture themselves and that's the end game. Right. And you have got the bane of the elderly is sarcopenia and osteoporosis. And the sarcopenia is androgen dependent. Exercise will help, but it'll never make up for the loss of testosterone. So you look at the, the lower extremities of the elderly, male and female. Oh, lo and behold, if they're not overweight, you're going to see really thin thighs and really thin calves. And you're going to see them take to canes and walkers because they've lost their muscle strength. And what you're not able to see, unless you're paying attention, is the diapers they're wearing called Depends because mm -hmm. the major muscle that holds up the bladder doesn't have the support anymore. So their bladder falls, and you couple that with vaginal atrophy, and you've got the greatest recipe for urinary incontinence, so you wear adult diapers called Depends. And do you think women like that? They, no. They're strong. It depends, actually. They're strong. It depends, eh? <laughs> <laughs> they're strong, mm -hmm. and they're willing to do what it takes. But I don't see women liking this. And they would much prefer to not have these, and they'd really prefer to not have to move out of their house because their family can't take care of them anymore because bladder and wheelchair issues so they go into assisted living so this is a big deal so you right. you never want to stop those androgens or the estrogens or mm -hmm. the progesterone or the DHEA so if it's true that too much hormone is a problem right do you agree with that sentence, like taking too much estrogen can be a problem for people? It's something I would never want to do. Right. Some people get away with it, and there's caveats. This is how complex this field is. Of course. Let me tell you a caveat, unless you don't want me to tell you what the caveat is. Let's, let's see what the caveat is. Okay. I, I defined what's sufficient in the level of hormone by what prevents bone loss and vaginal atrophy. Mm-hmm. But I didn't say what prevents cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. Because there's a certain cohort of women, if they don't get robust, almost staggering levels of estrogen, they can't function cognitively. And if they get the right amount, they can. So I'm one, one of these conferences, I'm sitting right next to an elderly black woman who is in her mid-60s. She's a gynecologist. And uh, she and I are striking up a conversation and she says, I'm still having periods. I'm taking estrogen doses so robust that I still have periods. My mother had dementia. My aunt had dementia. And when I started getting perimenopausal, I was unable to function as a doctor. And I tried all kinds of things. And it wasn't until I got my estrogen levels so high that my periods returned that I started thinking clearly. And here I am, 65 years old, and I'm thinking clearly, and I'm on 16 milligrams of estradiol oh my a God. day. <laughs> you know what that That's number means. Yeah. That's you know what that high. number is. Between one and two is an absolute maximum topically, and yeah. she's on 16. Mm -hmm. So you never say never. But for the most part, I want minimal levels of estrogen because I don't want to overstimulate breast glandular tissue. The medical literature has lots of examples and lots of editorial comments about 
you don't want to keep a woman cycling. You put her at greater risk. Right. And you don't want breast glandular cell proliferation because there's going to be mitosis in there and you're going to increase the risk of mitosis and something going off off the wall there. Right. And those are great arguments for why, like, to be uh, conservative about your dosing and try to, you know, keep it into a specific target range. But then we have the other issue that no one's testing correctly, as we just said. That's right. And we're basing it on how a woman feels. And even if we are testing, you said a percentage of those people are getting too much. So I kind of go to that same point is that precision here is what's needed. So when you are talking about how great bioidentical hormones are are, and how treating menopause is important until the day they die i think the big asterisk asterisk has to be is like they're not most people aren't doing that correctly so you have yet to kind of confirm my belief though that i uh most women that are seeking this stuff out could be putting themselves at risk if they're not doing their homework on uh who the practitioner is and what their skill set is even though yes some people are good so how can we help people uh who are now reopen to the idea of hormones find a practitioner Buy my book <laughs> because i define for women mm-hmm. we wrote a book for women mm-hmm. and i define for women this is what you're looking for got it some variation of this and not only that we've got to find a doc mm-hmm. all they have to do is click on their on our on our website find a doc and we have a full-time employee bless her heart in fact mm-hmm. you've communicated with her yeah. sherry's awesome she's awesome <laughs> Hiya, Sherry. <laughs> and uh, she takes these requests, and wherever we've trained a doctor, we refer to that doctor. And then we're training more and more and more every year. We're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's your best shot. Now, that's, these are not the only good docs. I did want to say that if you've got a doctor that you trust who's interested in treating you with hormones, and if you don't get overdosed, good, great good is going to take place. So if you've got a, a caring doctor who's paying a little attention you're going to do well regardless no matter what method they're doing and we have a method that if a woman has a doctor that's open to us for no charge to that doctor we will take their hand and walk them through how to do it right and they can become a member and they get 13 hours of online education and they can get mentored by me so we have created the infrastructure that if a doctor's open to it, and, and that's the way some of the doctors arrive to us. Their women say, look, I read this book. I really like the organic oils because that's another thing we do that you and I should cover sometime. Is the base. Mm-hmm. Is the base. Mm-hmm. These bases have toxic potential. Yeah, no, I agree. Propylene glycol was our go-to in the compounding world. Yeah, and and carbapol. To push it. And Mm -hmm. carbapol. So what Mm -hmm. did we do? I'm an organic guy. I opened up a biased, took this whiff of it, and I went, what in the heck is that? Well, you need strong solvents to get these poorly soluble steroid hormones up in the solution. But what if you don't create a solution? Then you're open to organic oils. And Mm -hmm. we have a patent on an organic oil mix. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have pharmacists prepare all their bioidenticals in these organic oil mix. And um, it's a suspension. So what does the woman have to do? She has to shake the bottle and put it on her skin. And that's it. And it suspends beautifully. We've tested the living heck out of it. And so I wanted to mention my pet peeve around we're asking women to apply these topicals to the tune of a quart a year. And I'm a holistic doc by birth. (laughs) And I, I got it. 
you know, the pharmacist accidentally sent a woman's prescription to my office after 10 years of me prescribing. And I went, look at this. There's bias. I've never seen bias. I opened up the <laughs> jar. There's the odor. And mm-hmm. I went, uh-oh. I'm trying to get these patients to detoxify and eliminate their to- their their toxic laundry soap and their toxic dish soap and their perfumes and all that stuff. And I'm asking them to apply a quart a year for the rest of their life of stuff that's toxic. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why we came up with the organic oils. I think that's a really good approach because I agreed, like you can make a pharmaceutical product elegant without it being um, so chemical laden, you know. I yeah. think that, you know, one of the things that I wanted to just touch on before we finish off with this episode is expectations. I feel that one of the bits of misinformation propagated mostly by Oprah and Suzanne Summers is that you put a drop of this on and the next day you feel 100% better. Um, but I believe that hormone management for women is a journey and it it takes some time and you don't want to go too fast because if you go too fast you could potentially go too heavy um so can you talk to me about expectations what excellent excellent point Mm -hmm. excellent point Mm -hmm. um any doctor who starts paying attention to treating women in menopause has this massive discovery that these cases are complex oh my god and there's a lot of moving parts and yes there's the rare woman that a few drops, I feel so much better, we're done. We test mm-hmm. you, you're done. Mm-hmm. But that is rare. And um, that was one of the shocks to me as I started treating women in menopause. I said, how in the world did they ever get away with a dose of Prempro? Right, because they were snowing them, and that's really it. They were just that's right. hard. That's and right. One size fits all. But I find, like, we, th- our initial process takes three months minimum, followed right. by testing. Right. Sometimes it takes longer. I say that there's never been a case that I haven't solved. But some oh, of go. them take a year or two. Right. It's eating an elephant, wrestling a bear, you know. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of a, a It's a piece a of, it's a piece, and there's a lot of moving parts, and there's the damage that was done by birth control pills with elevated sex hormone binding globulins, and there's absorption issues, and there's receptor site dormancy issues. So who's ever saying to women, Hey, take a few, a couple of dabs will do you. That's a, that's a, that's a. That guy's a jerk. Yeah, that's a a myth. Um, The uh, one more that I could think of uh, while we're talking about this is the role of stress, because a lot of women also believe that they can do this and then they will instantly feel better, but they don't understand the connection of stress and their menopausal symptoms. And can you speak on that for me? My God, man. Can you tell I've done it before? (laughs) You're hitting, this is very unusual for me, you're hitting all the big ones. Yeah, because, again, I try to help women all the time, and I would try to sit them down and explain to them this is going to take a while. But the thing we have to talk about is all of the stressors, and that's physical, nutritional, emotional. We have to get that all out. I call it extendopause. If you don't have your your stress under control, your menopause is going to go from a minute that your grandmother had when she shuddered once, and it's going to turn into this 10-year uh, horrible process that you're going to hate me through the whole period. In the mentoring doctor's, I set aside a half hour for a case consultation, and two days ago I got into a two-hour uh, conference, which, which was very unusual. The doctor was uh, really having a tough time, so we got in a three-way with the patient and the doctor and myself. Mm-hmm. And she was defying biochemistry, <laughs> which often way. happens. She's getting the right stuff, but it's not working. 
Right. And so eventually I uncovered the elephant in the room, which usually is stress. Because let's say a woman is in a marriage where she's had a lot of problems for a lot of years, but she's kept quiet and been nice. And her mood is deteriorated and she's gotten depressed and emotional. She goes into menopause and then her mood really gets deteriorated. Right. And we say, better living through biochemistry. We'll just give you these <laughs> hormones and you're going to be fine. Nature doesn't work like that. Right. You can't overcome nature. Nature is tr constantly trying to give us signals. And so although we had the hormones in interesting balance, I said to her, okay, there's clues here that there's probably an elephant in the room called you're not, you're trying to overcome, you're trying to use these hormones to overcome stress and the effects of stress and the stress is throwing out of balance. Is there any stress in your life? Sure enough, there it is. Oh, yeah. The marriage didn't mm -hmm. speak up, the husband was unconscious and not not a good partner not didn't not not really loving and she didn't so until she does what she needs to do which is to start speaking out and asking and unveiling what she sees and feels she's repressing all this energy which hormonally is a zoo right you start repressing your adrenaline and your cortisol and your thighs expand and everything stops working right mm -hmm. and in order to take that fight or flight chemistry in the proper direction you've got to deal with the emotions and the life issues that is driving and your choice to repress and so you've got to take on the whole enchilada which is yes get the chemistry right get the hormonology right there's nothing there's no stronger biochemicals than hormones right but you got to get your life right and like you said, you've got to get your nutrition right. If you're constantly abusing yourself and you're not exercising properly and you're not and you've got toxic issues, you don't get to straighten it out. And it's a it's a natural process. I respect this process. People arrive and break down and what you need to do is identify the things that matter and you think hormones are going to override the importance of a marriage that's deteriorated and the love mm -hmm. is nowhere in sight and the abuse is really prevailing even if it's yeah. quiet and, and silent. Even nothing that um, extreme. Most women today are doing uh, factors more than women gen a generation or two ago. So multiple jobs or even a single job and then running a household, children, uh, people graduating, finances, all of the stressors of today are, are incredible. Not just for millennials. And so you can't overcome that with hormones because your body has a natural process. If, it's, mm -hmm. if you're not doing the right thing, it, it's going to stop the world for you. And mm -hmm. one of its chief techniques is symptoms and illness. That will stop the world and get people's attention. And what the people need to do is go, gee, I'm breaking down all over. Why? What's right. going on here? But the problem is they got to come up with the right answer. They can't come up with, well, this is a vitamin C deficiency, and if you take sufficient vitamin C, or let's get really exotic about it, if you take the right hormones, this is going to overcome the three drop jobs you're working and trying to maintain your kids. Yeah. <laughs> Financial stress mm -hmm. and you can't keep a roof over your head. Right. Yeah, I think that uh, this has been very uh, eye-opening for me, especially around the misinformation of the data and the scare, uh, the big scare of the Women's Health Initiative. So I think that 
we'll call it quits for this episode, but I definitely want to have you back to talk about more specifics about, um, you know, hormones and um, therapeutics and getting into the nitty gritty. I know that you're not a supplement guy, so that's okay. No, because uh, I, I am a, a supplement little... guy. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, definitely. Great. All right, great. So uh, then we'll talk about supplements and the BS around that because that's where I really live. So um, next time we have you on. And for now, thank you very much, sir. Um, appreciate it. And um, I think this is going to be really eye-opening for all of my listeners. My honor and my pleasure, Neil. This is fun. <laughs> this, is, this is our sport. Yeah, man. Thanks to Dr. David Rosensweet for coming on today. I'm really happy to speak to a real expert about this. As we discussed during the interview, I did this. I did women's hormone counseling with some regularity, and I actually was a compounding pharmacist. In fact, I started one of the first accredited compounding pharmacies in the state of New York, and that is one of the things that makes my supplement expertise so unique. I have a thirst for what we call continuous quality improvement, CQI, and I'm really experienced with compliance with federal regulations, which translates very well over to supplement manufacturing and compliance. Anyway, it was a tough process, mostly because of the variance of the comfort levels and training and experience of the prescribers who were trying their best for their patients, but not really nailing down the the best practices. So Dr. David Rosensweet here, he's an expert. And in his professional opinion, hormones aren't to be feared like we all think. I can definitely see his perspective, but as I said in the interview, we have to put a huge asterisk on that. Hormones are not to be feared, sure, uh, and may be a great option for certain women if they have the trusted, trained practitioner that's doing the proper assessments and testing to minimize your risks. So to find that right practitioner, I want you to reach out to the good doc. Visit menopausemethod.com or davidrosensweetmd.com. That's spelled D-A-V-E-D-R-O-S-E-N-S-W-E-E-T-M-D.com. And give a call to the office, 941-220-5444. But get that book, Happy Healthy Hormones, How to Thrive in Menopause. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and be well. <laughs>